You are listening to the Hospice Chaplaincy Show, a show where we talk about psychospiritual and psychosocial aspects of end-of-life care. And now, here is your host, Saul. Thank you very much for joining us on this episode of the Hospice Chaplaincy Show. I'm Saul Ebema. My guest today is the author of Brave Love, Julie Boyd. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Habarigani. Mzuri. <laughs> if you're listening, <laughs> I just asked her in Swahili, how are you doing? And she said, fine. So Julie, where did you grow up? So I grew up in Kansas City until I was in high school. And then I moved to Northern California. And um, I went to college in Los Angeles, became a nurse and had the opportunity while I was in nursing school to go on a short-term trip to Kenya. So how did your nursing journey then take you to Kenya, East Africa? Well, a friend of mine wanted to go on this trip with the university uh, to a village, to a couple of villages in Western Kenya that the university was coordinating. And I didn't necessarily have the intention of going on the trip, but Uh, She didn't want to go to the information meeting by herself. And so I went with her. And then by the end of that meeting, I really wanted to go on the trip. And my friend ended up not going that summer. uh, But I I spent a month amongst just remarkable Kenyan leaders who really cared about the suffering of their people, as well as just developing the community. And I was really, really moved by the experience. I came back to LA, finished nursing school, began to work in HIV care in Los Angeles for several years while I became a nurse practitioner and stayed in touch with the people who I'd met in Kenya. And when I finished my nurse practitioner, um, I signed up to go for a year and that was in 2004. And I thought it, you know, would be a year or two, but it's been 19 years now. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you know, uh, somebody who is listening might be wanting to take the same path, moving from the United States to a third world country. Uh, let's talk about a little bit of adaptation. How easy or how hard was it to adapt to the Kenyan lifestyle? Well, I think what made my journey something that has been lasting and something that I think has been really transformative for me has been that I've always had really good Kenyan leaders who I've lived amongst, worked worked alongside. And so it's been really collaborative. And they, the hospitality that I received, um, the grace that I received to be a learner <laughs> in a culture outside of my own really made a huge difference so that, you know, that I could be welcomed. I could in ways belong. Um, that I think is a gift and a privilege that I will always be grateful for. I would definitely say if anyone is interested in doing cross-cultural work or being a part of global health in some ways, the the need for humility, the need to listen and learn and um, to not make quick judgments about other cultures than your own, even if you don't understand, I think is so critical and has been so important for me in my journey. And that brings us to brave love. What was the motivation behind writing Brave Love? Well, over the last nearly 20 years, I've gotten to live many stories. Um, I've gotten to accompany 
patients who we like to refer to our patients as guests because we think of just the beauty of hospitality and caring for patients. Um, how do we receive people? How do we welcome them? Um, those stories uh, are held together through the themes of courage and compassion and doing that within community. And it really motivated me to to reflect and to begin the writing process. So I've I've been a part of leading a nonprofit doing hospice and palliative care work that's grown into other areas of medical um, work for the last 13 years um, in an organization called Living Room International. And um, with that, just all of the stories that I've gotten to be a part of, I I wanted to start putting those together. And so that's what's become uh, the book, Brave Love. Um, in addition, for the past seven years, I've my husband and I, we've been parents to uh, children living with chronic illness. And so seeing through the lens of motherhood, um, how that has also helped reshape the way I think about patient care, the the questions that I ask, the the ways that I interact with patients. A lot of that has been reframed by really sitting on the patient side of things also and how that can um affect the the work that we do. And so that's also a big uh, theme that runs throughout the book. How do you define brave love? Well, years ago, I would have said brave had to do with um, not being afraid, but I think more and more that actually being brave is at times stepping into the spaces where we're not comfortable, where it might leave us a little bit uh, fearful and yet a willingness to do it and a willingness to care. Um, there's a quote by Dr. Sunita Puri where she she's a palliative care physician and she writes that um, the prelude to compassion is a willingness to see. And I think that so often um, if we are willing to step into spaces and be uncomfortable and stay there and look and listen, um, that it leads towards a presence that is kind and patient and loving. And, and uh, you know, that's what I think brave love is, is it's not that we get it right every time. There's a willingness to try. There's a willingness um, to, to begin small and step-by-step step find our way. And, and not to do that alone. I think that doing that in community at least for my journey, has been such an important piece. This isn't, a, you know, like my story is not about me being brave alone. It's been, it's been so much how to do it with, with others. And, and in that, like to listen and learn from one another as we journey through many, many steps. Talk about the moment uh, brave love became a reality for you. Oh, I'm not sure if there was one moment. I think mm -hmm. there's been thousands of them. Um, but I think there's been a guiding question that's helped us and helped me. Um, it's somewhat of a prayer, but in moments where I'm not really sure what to do and I'm confronted with suffering or if I'm confronted with just the hardship of, of life, um, asking the question, what does it look like to love? in this situation and allowing it to be a guide and not that it always gives a you know a, a perfect sense of clarity but that 
leaning into what might love look like here, I think has been really helpful and and guiding for for me and for the work of living room. For sure, one of our earliest patients um, there when we were still doing outpatient care and home-based care, mostly around HIV, there were two orphaned HIV-positive babies who were severely malnourished, and our team had gone into their homes and were trying to to care for them from the community, but we knew they needed inpatient service. And so our, our team reflected on, we know that they only have days to weeks to live, but if we were to create an inpatient facility, even temporarily for these babies, what might that do? And so that was definitely a moment where it felt a little daunting in the task in front of us. I think it's really important to say it wasn't like a better than nothing approach. We were trained medical people who were who were just trying to figure out how to help these children. And, and that starting that um, inpatient care center for those two babies that led to one of them coming back to life and thriving and the other in time being referred to a a government hospital where they ended up passing away. But that willingness to to care, to love, to provide an excellence in service that um, eventually became what Living Room is today, which is paying attention to the person in front of us and having a 24-bed inpatient hospice in a rural community, and then also now a second uh, community hospital where it's 60 beds. um, And between the two locations with all the different work that we're doing, that we're serving over 100,000 people a year. And it's a team of 150 Kenyans who compassionately show up every day to to provide the work. Julia, it's obvious that you have um, a selfless approach to life. Uh, was that modeled for you? How did that become a way of living for you? Well, I think from the time that I was really small, like I've had parents who loved me very well and loved our neighbors. Um, faith has definitely guided my journey. And then I've had I've had wonderful mentors over the years who have demonstrated compassion in selfless ways that have helped to shape me and continue to grow me in ways that um, I hope to become. What have you learned about yourself? I've learned limits. I've learned that, you know, within my humanity, that there are things that on certain days I can or can't do. I've also learned that my heart has expanded in ways that I didn't know was possible. Um, One of the things I feel really grateful for is that when I moved to Kenya or when the nonprofit started, when we we started things that felt small, that they were trying to do the right thing that was the right next thing. And I think that has led to something that's bigger than I ever imagined it would become as far as the work and um, the growth that's happened within Living Room. And and like I, what I often say is that I'm grateful that I didn't know it was going to become something like this that would have impact on the larger healthcare system of Kenya that would have influence on shaping what hospice and palliative care looks like in a nation. 
I'm I'm just grateful that we were willing to do what felt like the next right thing, and that step by step, that's that's led to to where we are today. And and even like in the next years, I don't know what's still in front of us. It's not that we don't have dreams, but I think there's still a a, a willingness a willingness to keep stepping into to what's in front of us and to do it as a team. Well, now we'll take a little break. Again, our guest is Julie Boyd. She's the author of Brave Love. We'll be right back. Continuing to be a leader in the field of spiritual care at the end of life, Hospice Chaplaincy provides high-quality professional development webinars that will improve your practice of spiritual care at the end of life. Check out our latest webinars at www.hospicechaplaincy.com. I'm Sole Bem, and we continue our conversation with Julie Boyd. Uh, could you tell us a little bit? I know you've not worked in hospice and palliative care in the United States. Could you give our listeners an, an idea of what it is like in Kenya? When we started the hospice in 2009 uh, in Kenya, it was the first inpatient facility in the country. And even to today, there's still very limited um, inpatient services around hospice. There have been wonderful leaders um, within the Kenya Hospice and Palliative Care Association who I've gotten to work alongside of over the last years. But I would say that Ken- that uh, hospice is still a, it's still a, a new area of healthcare and medicine, not readily recognized within the Ministry of Health. And even um, as far as reimbursement for services, it's not a reimbursable medical service that can be provided. So I would say that it, it the differences would be like the philosophies of care would be similar, but actually getting it done and having it recognized and valued within amongst healthcare providers, having access to morphine or pain medicine is really limited. For the patients that we would want to send home, many don't have electricity. And so like things like oxygen can be, if you know, if a patient is oxygen dependent can be really difficult. It's also for home care, getting vehicles to different locations or even access of a vehicle to take a nurse or social worker, whoever might be the provider that wanted to go to homes. Like, I think just the infrastructure of being able to provide home care is still challenging. And so for our team, we do quite a bit of home care right around our hospice, but a lot of walking and motorbikes and things like that to get to patients. But to do that on the larger scale of the country has has take it's going to take time for that to develop. I would also say that patients if they do need hospice and palliative care that there's it's often a very late referral which you know isn't maybe so different than sometimes in the states but to be able to actually really develop relationships and to be able to provide the the pain and symptom management, it's it can be challenging to get it done early enough to really provide, I think, relief for the patients and their families. So who is supporting you with the medication and transportation? So with Living Room, um, we've done, uh, we're a nonprofit, so we've done a lot of fundraising to be able to run the hospice. 
Our second hospital, we actually intended it for also it to be a hospice and palliative care service. Um, the the hospice that's a 24-bed, the original one that we built, it's named Kimbulio, which means refuge, and we've offered that as a free service. So we've done a lot of fundraising and have grants to be able to help run that. Our second hospital, where we wanted it like I was saying, to be similar where we would also be running hospice services when we went to register it so that we could also be reimbursed by the National Health Insurance Fund to try to make it more of a sustainable, replicable replicable model. The Ministry of Health said that they wouldn't reimburse for hospice and that we would need to be a, a community hospital where we'd offer a lot of additional services. So We've done that and built hospice and palliative care within it, um, but that wasn't the original intention. And I just think it's going to take time um, for the country to be at a place where they recognize really the the value and the importance of having hospice and palliative care services. Yeah. So your book is 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 a beautiful meditation on brave love and an invitation to brave love. We all know that when you love deeply, it hurts sometimes. What drives you? Well, I think that, I think love is driving for sure. Um, I think the love of God has driven me to do this work. Uh, My neighborhood and neighbors, wanting them to not have to suffer as much has been a a motivating um, factor for me. I think watching even for my children when we needed they needed bone marrow transplants and we moved to the states for them to receive that to receive them at um at UCLA here in Los Angeles the there was a family that welcomed us and their hospitality and their love and the ways that they allowed us to be in their home for 477 days so that our kids would have a chance to be cured I think like living through that journey, how that has also wanting that, that the same the same type of love that was extended to us to be able to extend that to others, I think has been a big piece for me over the last couple of years. You know, I think that there's something really powerful about not trying to avoid the pain and suffering that that there are times where as we are willing to accompany others or allow others to accompany us in our own pain that there's a vulnerability that's required for that but it's not that that it's all it's all bad i think there's something that can be very meaningful there's something beautiful that can happen in those spaces and it's not that it it's not that it can't feel completely dark at times but i think the journey of loving of not doing it alone of like holding on to hope in the midst of those situations, like I feel like it continues to to compel, to compel me and to compel um, this work that I hope that we can continue to do. Mm. As an invitation uh, to brave love, let's look at it as a concept. How can people uh, give and receive brave love? Well, I think. Like I, I mentioned earlier, I think the prelude to compassion is willingness to see. So a willingness to listen, to look, to at times remain in a space that may not feel comfortable. I think that is where the opportunities for us to be vulnerable and to also find a, 
a strength that is at times greater than we knew that we had within us um, leads us step by step in in a journey of of loving in a journey of being patient and kind and and brave and that courage for for me I have found and I, I know I've said this earlier but it's it's within community it's not doing it alone so I think the idea of like finding it within ourselves but also a willingness to do it alongside others um, can really help in that and growing in that. Well, that will take a little break. Again, our guest is Julie Boyd. She's the author of Brave Love, and we'll be right back. If someone you know is suffering from mental health issues and could use some support, please call the National Alliance for Mental Illness Helpline. It is a free nationwide peer support service, providing information, resource referrals, and support to people living with a mental health condition. To contact the NAMI Helpline, please call 1-800-950-NAMI. That's 1-800-950-6264, Monday through Friday, or send an email to info at nami.org. I'm Sole Behman. We continue our conversation with Julie Boyd. Obviously, your passion for hospice and palliative care is to aid, you know, is to provide an opportunity for people to die with dignity. But when we hear that word, it it means different things to different people. What does dying with dignity in Kenya mean for you? I think that it it means that people get to not be alone. Community means so much within within Kenya and so many places in the world. I think having relief from as much of the pain as possible. Um, having people walking alongside of you where, where they're listening, the paying attention. Uh, to me, that that's what we're you know aiming to do. Our vision has always been to be a community of compassion that honors life and offers hope. And I think that as we get the opportunity to welcome and receive patients and their families and to just reaffirm their value and worth and do it in ways of uh, physical care and psychosocial support and spiritual care, like all of those have been really important and, and, and help us and help guide us as we think about how to care for someone as they're dying. Yeah. You know, when the modern-day hospice uh, was started in England by Cicely Saunders, uh, St. Christopher's Hospice, it was a home, uh, a house or a home for the dying. And here in the United States, most of the hospice work is done in people's homes or nursing homes or hospitals. What is more practical in Kenya? Is it a, a home for the dying or doing visits in their private homes? Well, I think it's going to take time for hospice to develop for us really to be able to fully articulate that. But there, like within the inpatient services that we've done, so we built a hospice home initially. And what we've tried to do is make sure that there's a lot of outside spaces. So from early morning, um, we take patients outside. So we want them to experience 
the beauty of gardens and the fresh air and space for their families to come and visit or their friends. You know, like, I think that that has, has been a really powerful and beautiful experience. For sure, there are patients who want to be in their homes. And as much as we can help facilitate that, we want to do that. I think the infrastructure of providing hospice widespread throughout Kenya has not fully been developed yet and may take some time. Um, but then there's also an element within aspects of culture where bec- where it's not fully acceptable for someone to go back home um, while they're still really sick. So it f- feels to the family or to their friends like that they've not gotten the help that they need because they're dying. So I think that acceptance of it being end of life it has it's, it will still you know probably take time for there to be a, a I think an understanding amongst community and culture and healthcare services of just the approaches that make the most sense within the culture. Are there other individuals or organizations like you or the one you have coming to East Africa and doing this? There are definitely other hospices that we partner with throughout the country. Many of them are doing are doing some form of outpatient or home care. Um, and I've met remarkable Kenyan leaders who really do care about the the suffering of the community, the suffering of families and individuals, the lack of access to um, medical treatment and hospice care. I think one of the things that does play a role also in our in hospice is that so many of these patients, if they were able to access proper treatment, they wouldn't necessarily need to be hospice patients. And so there it's it's a little complex as far as like even earlier days with HIV populations where it it was that they didn't have access to the medication that they needed. And so, I think it is important that, you know, I don't think geography should determine whether someone should be able to live with the disease or not. And so really differentiating those who need solid medical care versus those who need um, more hospice treatment um, is still part of what, you know, what we're trying to navigate. Yeah. From your experience, what are the biggest barriers to access? Affordability can be um, also distances to be able to to get to treatment, or if you get to the hospital, navigating the system can be very tricky um, for many of the people that we work with from r- really rural communities. Like if they if they don't have the either the education or just someone who's able to help advocate the system, um, it can be hard to to even know where to go or when to go or how to get there. Um, So a large part of the work that we also do is around advocacy and advocating for patients to either be able to get national health insurance fund or to be able to get to the right clinic on the right day or to make sure that the, you know, the person in their home who is dying of cancer, that they are getting the morphine or they're getting the symptom management that they need. So just like trying to build bridges and advocate um, is has been a big part. But I think that affordability um, and 
just barriers to getting into into the right place at the right time is a, is part of the access problem or challenge. So in case a listener is listening to you now and they are motivated to be part of this, what kind of volunteers are you looking for, if any? Yes, so we do have um, short-term volunteers who come um, and work alongside of us. At times there's hospice nurses, there's social workers, chaplains, there's hospital administrators who can come and work alongside of our team. We can learn from one another, shared experiences, and we have a we just have a process of um, scheduling when and and it's not usually a long period of time, um, but we we love to welcome guests to come and be a part of our work. And then you know there's many who don't have the time or you know don't want to come that far, but there's definitely opportunities for we do at times Zoom trainings with like in wound care or um, different different areas where uh, someone would, is willing to consult on a patient or on a case or just to encourage our staff and team. So there's opportunities with both, both virtually and in person. And then, you know, also we definitely um, depend and um, love to develop relationships with people who want to partner with us in giving towards this work so that it can continue um, to be a home and a refuge for people who otherwise wouldn't get the opportunity to receive the care that we can provide. So Julie, uh, what are your final thoughts? I'm grateful to be a hospice nurse and to be a part of a larger kind of global community of people who care about um, who care about quality service for people at the end of life and and I've been um, I've been really really honored to to do it in the place where I, I live and work which is in eastern Africa in a village in Kenya but also I feel like, if I were to move to another place, like just these philosophies of care, this commitment to compassion and excellence and doing it in community, that I would hope that I would, you know, be able to do that whether I was in the States or anywhere. And I feel like that hopefully that's something um, that just as a hospice community, we can continue to to stand together and to ask hard questions, but also to continue to lean into love and and to lean into courage and compassion. And so I, I'm grateful for the opportunity to share about the work that I get to do and the book that I've written about it. How can our listeners get a hold of your book? Uh, it's available wherever books are sold, um, but at julieboyt.com, it tells more about our work at Living Room as well as the book, and um, I'd love to connect with, with you all. Julie, thank you very much. Mm, thank you so much. That was Julie Boyd, the author of Brave Love. You are listening to the Hospice Chaplaincy Show. Our project manager is Melissa Caprelli, and our studio engineer is Brian McKinder. And I'm Sole Bema. Thank you for listening. This show was brought to you by Hospice Chaplaincy, promoting excellence in spiritual care at the end of life. This episode was recorded at Audio Hive Podcasting in Julia, Illinois. 
You can find our podcast everywhere podcasts are available. If you enjoy listening to the show, please don't forget to give us your feedback by writing a review on iTunes. For more information, please visit www.hospicechaplaincy.com.